there's an experience we all have uh, when scrolling through news on social media or when we're watching the news or listening to news on the radio. Yeah, some people still do that. Um, it's the experience of just wanting to turn it off. Turn it off. Bad news again and again and again. Sometimes we read and watch and listen intently, wanting to find out what's happening in this broken world, but sometimes it's just a bit overwhelming and we want to remain oblivious to it, ignorant of the mess and the horror that keeps unfolding around us. Terrible stories like what, what the Russian troops are doing all across the Ukraine. Untold stories of what the Russian authorities have been doing to their own people who have the courage to stand up. Then there's the stories that were coming out of the floods in Queensland and in New South Wales down to Sydney. 20 people died. In fact, as of Friday, I think it's 21 over the last couple of months. Terrible stories coming out of the vulnerable stuck. As I was preparing this talk, I was scrolling through some news stories that, that had just come out. On Monday, in Ecuador, there was a massacre in a prison where 44 inmates died and 200 prisoners escaped. And as of Wednesday, 20 were still at large. On Tuesday this week, in the Democratic Republic of Congo, there's a group called Kodeko. They're an armed rebel militia, and they killed at least 14 people in a refugee camp in Ichuri. And that was just after killing at least 35 in a different attack in a mine. And as I kept scrolling, there was just horrendous story after horrendous story after horrendous story. You know what that feels like, because that's our world. And behind every one of these stories, there are people whose lives are shattered and broken as they suffer in untold ways. But that's just the scratch of the surface, isn't it? There's so many other stories that we never hear about that don't hit the news. And it's not just out there somewhere, is it? I mean, if I did a survey in this room, I'm sure there'd be a number of stories of suffering ourselves, let alone of those that are close to us, of health crisis, of relational breakdown, of financial distress, of personal anguish, all sorts of things here in this room. Those of us who are Christians, we believe two key things about our God that is vital to appreciate and consider when we consider the depth and the horror of suffering in this world. Firstly, the character of God. As Christians, we believe in a God that is merciful and loving and caring and compassionate. The other thing we believe, we believe that God is powerful, in control. And in the face of the depth and the horror of the suffering we experience, and that many people experience, many people find this belief in a powerful, sovereign, caring God just plain unbelievable and, in fact, offensive. If God really is in control, if he really does care, then why is the suffering happening? Why does it continue? Why doesn't he stop it? More personally, why do I suffer so much? Why do those who are close to me suffer so much? And God just seems to look on, doing nothing, not caring. Suffering isn't just an existential question. It's not just a philosophical problem that we need to try and find a clever answer to. That's not suffering, is it? No, it's a deep and personal experience that's marked by grief and loss and hurt and tears and disappointment. An experience we long to find not just answers 
but hope. In the face of suffering, we need hope. A hope that actually makes sense of suffering, at least in part, and a hope that can outlast the horror of what so many experience in this world. But many people, when they consider the God that we Christians believe in, they don't see hope, they don't see answers. In fact, they find reasons to reject the God that we as Christians love and worship. And so Richard Dawkins, a famous outspoken biologist and atheist, says this about the suffering of the world. It'll come up on the screen. Uh, The total amount of suffering per year in the natural world is beyond all decent contemplation. During the minute that it takes me to compose this sentence, thousands of animals are being eaten alive. Many others are running for their lives, whimpering in fear. Others are slowly being devoured from within by rasping parasites. Thousands of all kinds are dying of starvation, thirst and disease. It must be so. If there ever is a time of plenty, this very fact will automatically lead to an increase in the population until the natural state of starvation and misery is restored. Then when he considers the Christian answer to the suffering in our world, he's just offended by it. Here's a tweet that he put uh, put up a few years ago. Why such suffering? Well, because God gave us free will, as he mocks the Christian response. Oh, of course, free to get MS, free to get leukaemia, free to lose all sorts in an earthquake. Makes sense. That's his mocking response to the Christian response to suffering. Now, while this emotive response simplifies the Christian answer to the deep question of suffering, what he, what he says echoes the thought and the voices of many who suffer, who see their own suffering and others, and they see it as a reason not to believe in the God of the Bible. David Attenborough, uh, when he was asked what, what he makes of Christians who say, you know, you look at the world and surely you must believe in a God who's made this wonderful world, this is his response. My response is that when creationists talk about God creating every individual species as a separate act, they always instance hummingbirds or orchids, sunflowers and beautiful things, but I tend to think instead of a parasitic worm that's boring through the eye of a boy sitting on the bank of a river in West Africa, a worm that's going to make him blind. I ask them, are you telling me that the God that you believe in who you also say is an all-merciful God, who cares for each one of us individually, are you saying that God created this worm that can live in no other way than in an innocent child's eyeball? Because that doesn't seem to me to coincide with a God who's full of mercy. Can you feel the weight of that? The suffering in our world is incalculable. And to the eyes and ears and experiences of many, it looks for all intents and purposes like God is doing nothing and that God doesn't care. The question of suffering for many is enough to discount any thought of considering the person of Jesus and the existence of God. How could a good God exist and allow such horrors to go on and on and on? They're questions that you might deeply feel yourself and ask yourself whether you believe in Jesus or not here tonight. And today, tonight, my hope is that what we'll see together is that in the words of our loving, suffering, dying God is real and deep answers to the real and deep questions of suffering Not all the answers, of course, many will remain unanswered, but enough answers to say yes, 
yes, this is a God I know I can trust in the midst of suffering and death. That's my hope tonight. The Bible doesn't back away from the reality that this world is full of pain and suffering and death and curse. God in his word paints a realistic picture of the world that we live in. It recognises the wonder and the beauty of what God has done in creating this world, but it doesn't sugarcoat the reality of our world of pain and suffering. It doesn't paste over the depth of our struggles with platitudes. It doesn't do that. It faces suffering head on from page to page, from cover to cover. In the passage we read earlier, there's one passage that brings it up, Romans chapter 8. Make sure you've got it open. Have a look at verse 20. As it aptly describes our world as broken, as subject to futility. Verse 22, it says the whole creation groans. Verse 23, we groan as well. That word groan is a really powerful word when you think about it in this context. It's a helpful description of our experience of suffering and death, like a, like a bridge groaning under the weight of, of a load that's too heavy for it. Or a car overloaded for the holidays, we groan under... I don't know how that car made it. But that's the sort of experience he's talking about. As we groan under the weight of suffering and loss and brokenness in our world, that's what it feels like. And interestingly, Paul says that the whole created order groans as well. Paul's not saying that the flowers and the mountains and the seas have feelings. Rather, he's saying that the whole created order suffers under the brokenness and the curse of our world. This world, this creation, is not what it was meant to be. It's not what it was created to be, and it longs to be made right. That's a very different idea to that of the atheists like Dawkins, isn't it? In the face of suffering that we experience in this world and the horrible finality of death, what would Dawkins say? Well, let me just continue the quote I started earlier. It'll come up on the screen as well. In, in a universe full of electrons and selfish genes, blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt. Other people are going to get lucky. And you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. So you rule God out of the picture and the suffering and the injustice and the death that we all experience, well, it's just the way it is. It's the way we should expect it to be. It's natural, it's normal, we just need to get used to it. We just need a deal. That's his answer. There's a natural state of starvation and misery. That's life. Get on with it. That's so different to what our passage says, doesn't it? You know, our passage says that when we go through suffering, pain, hardship and grief, and deep down we feel that something is wrong, it's actually right to feel that. The world is not what it was created to be. And it's not what it's destined to be and to become. The something more that we long for, the justice, the end of suffering, is coming. In the meantime, this world is broken. You see, in the face of suffering, we long for life without tragedy. We long for life without pain, without grief, without sorrow. We wonder why our world is like this, because it just feels wrong. And the time when this hits us hardest is when we come face to face with death. 
You know, I'm old enough, I've been to a number of funerals and taken a number, and one thing that hits you in a funeral is that death is wrong. Life was not meant to end like this. We're meant for more than this. At the very core, that's why we ask the questions we do about suffering. Our questions in the face of suffering come from this deep down truth that we all know that death isn't right. This world is not the way it's meant to be. Death yells out loud and clear, there's something wrong. We're meant for more than this. But did you notice in the Romans 8 passage, um, it says that the created order, verse 20, was subjected to futility. That's the word that's used. God cursed this world. He subjected it to suffering and death and curse. Why? Why would God do that to the world that he made? And here ultimately is one of the key answers to the question of suffering from the Bible, from God and his word. Why would God do this? Because of our sin. Basically, one way or another, the suffering in this world can be traced back to sin. Sometimes that link is very easy to see when we see people suffer as a result of the sin of others, like we see what's happening in the Ukraine, and I'm sure you can think of countless other examples of that. Sometimes our suffering can be traced back to our own sin or stupidity, like the suffering I experienced when I fell off my mountain bike and severed part of my finger. If you look carefully, you can see it. Okay when I'm trying to ride like a 25-year-old, when I'm not 25 anymore. That stupidity, I suffered. We all go through that, some more than others. Sometimes the link isn't so clear, like the suffering that comes from disasters, like floods and earthquakes, like what we've seen in New South Wales and Queensland with the floods, and what we see when people get sick. Through no direct result of sin. Well, how is it traced back to sin? Well, to understand that, we need to understand what sin is. Sin's not at the very heart about disobeying laws of God, okay? They're the symptoms. That's not the heart of it. Sin is relational at its very core. Sin, as the Bible describes it, is treason against God. That's what it is, treason against God. It's the indifference to God that we're all guilty of. It's the indifference that says, God, I don't care what you say. I don't care who you are. I'm in charge. The reason why this world is cursed is this attitude that can be traced right back to the first humans who in their profound wisdom decided life would be better if God was out of the picture. And the Bible says that from that day, God cursed the world, judged the world, subjected the world to futility, as it says in Romans chapter 8. The reason why things are not right is because all of us have turned our back on God and so God has responded by subjecting the world to futility. So while suffering, the suffering of our world is tragic, and it is, and awful, and it is, there's one good thing it does for us. It yells to us loud and clear things aren't right. It makes us ask questions that we need to ask about life, about God, about us, about death. Suffering does us that good. It shakes us to see that there's something not right with this world and with us. Jesus was asked in Luke 13 about some people who died unjustly at the hands of Pilate. Have a look at his response to them in Luke 13. 
Do you think that these Galileans were more sinful than all the other Galileans because they suffered these things? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish as well. All those 18 that the Tower of Siloam fell on and killed, do you think that they were more sinful than all the other people who live in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish as well. These sufferings, the reality of death that comes to all of us and comes around us is a warning to all of us still alive that things in this world aren't right. And in particular, things aren't right between us and God. That's what it's saying. That's what God is saying through it. But in the face of this brokenness and the megaphone message of suffering, Romans reminds us, the book of Romans reminds us that God has a plan, a plan to bring to reality our hopes, our desires, our deep desires that we have in the face of death and suffering, a hope of life free from tears and pain and suffering and death. Verse 19, the creation is waiting in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. Verse 21, waiting to be set free from its bondage and brokenness. And we who trust in Jesus wait expectantly for our redemption of our bodies. For that day when suffering, when death, when sin, when curse, when tears and sorrow will be wiped away forever. Richard Dawkins' answer to suffering is that it's just normal. It's just the way it is and we just have to deal. The Bible tells us that this suffering and loss is not normal. It's not what we're made for. And we should do more than just deal. We can hope. But before we think through how all this links to our day-to-day life, there's one vital aspect of the Bible's words on suffering that we need to consider, and that is the God who suffers. I've gone through a number of different experiences of significant suffering so far in my life, and in all those times there's one thing that has helped me work through, continue to trust God through those difficult times of suffering. And it's not just the idea that God is doing a good work in that suffering, although that's helpful to me and was an important thing for me to hear. And it wasn't just the hope of life to come, although that helped lift my eyes out of the suffering that I was going through. The thing that helped me most was the fact that God himself is one who suffers. Do you know the difference between empathy and sympathy? Let me explain it to you. If you don't, sympathy is when you feel for someone as one looking into their suffering but never having gone through it yourself. That's sympathy. It's a great thing as we feel for someone in the situation they're in but we don't know what it's like. Empathy is when you deeply care for someone as one who has been where they are and you know what they're going through because you've been there yourself. The Christian God is an empathetic God. He's not just sympathetic. He's empathetic. He's been there. He came to our world. He experienced our grief. He cried our tears. He doesn't sit in heaven removed from our suffering and look down. He's been here, experienced it, the pain, the injustice, the grief of death, the death of those he loves. The agony of death itself, he's experienced it all. 
And he did this not so that he could just feel it, so be empathetic. He did it so that he could win the victory for us over sin and suffering. Have a look at this passage. Uh, It's going to come up on the screen, 1 Peter 2, as it speaks of the God who suffers. For you are called to this, this is suffering for doing good, in in 1 Peter 2, uh, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He did not commit sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Peter is speaking about what Jesus went through on the cross. He willingly went through being rejected. He stepped into it willingly. Rejected, abandoned, betrayed, abused, cursed, stripped, beaten, killed. Killed in the most horrific way the Romans could devise. And yes, this passage said he did it as an example for us to follow, but it wasn't just an example. You can see in the end of the passage, through his wounds, through his suffering, through his death, We are healed, we are restored, we are forgiven, we are made right with God. And he takes the judgment from the Father that we deserve so we can be forgiven and be his friends. In the heartbreak of suffering and grief, in the shocking reality of death, we have a God who suffered, has been there, has done it for us. So in the face of suffering, we can pray to God, knowing that not only does he hear us, not only does he act, but he knows us as one who has suffered in ways that we would struggle to comprehend. Suffering and death can make us ask big questions. Why is God letting this happen? Why doesn't he do something to end it? It can make us question whether God's there at all. And if he is, if he really cares at all, Is he in control? Does he care? We've seen already Richard Dawkins' answer to the big question of suffering and death. I haven't finished the quote, though, so let me just finish it so you can see where he lands. In a universe of electrons and selfish genes, blind forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, other people are going to get lucky, and you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe that we observe has has precisely the properties we should expect. If there is, at bottom, no design... No purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. It's not a very appealing answer, is it? And it actually doesn't ring true of life, does it? Or of experience in suffering? Basically, Dawkins is saying to suffering, there is no answer, there never will be. So let's just make the most of life and just get on with it. Most people, I don't think, find Dawkins' answer very convincing. This idea that we live in a blind, purposeless, indifferent universe just doesn't ring true. 
So instead, let me show you a less depressing atheist answer to the big question of death and approach uh, to the reality of death that encourages us to use the reality of death for positive change. Chris put me onto this one. It's really helpful. It's a YouTube video by a group called The School of Life. Uh, we're not going to watch the video. I'm just going to read to you a shortened narrative of the video itself with some images that will come up. Many things that we need to tackle are left aside because we're scared. We're scared to fail, scared to tell our partners who we really are, scared to take our dreams seriously. From fear, we delay the lives we know we should be leading. There is a dark but useful solution to this delay. It doesn't involve reassurance or reminding ourselves that there is time. It involves aligning our thoughts to something radically larger and scarier than any of our doubts and hesitations, something that can jolt us from our timid lethargy. We should use the thought of death, not to make us despair of life, but to shake us into more committedly pursuing the life we know we ought to lead. It's a bit more appealing than the Dawkins approach, isn't it? It's a bit more positive... There's a strong vein of truth in it. Let the reality of death shake us into decided action. That's essentially what it's saying. But I don't think it works. Not really. Not when you think about it. It might work when things are going well, but in the face of death, in the face of ongoing hard suffering, I don't think it answers the questions at all. Why does my life matter? Is there hope? I hope greater than what I can achieve in a broken world full of death and suffering. It doesn't answer those questions at all. What the School of Life presents are helpful ideas and thoughts, but in the end, in the face of suffering and death, it's just a little unsatisfying. It's a little empty of purpose and real answer. It doesn't provide hope, it just provides a framework to try and help you cope with the presence of no hope, of no meaning of no answer, and it doesn't cut it in the crucible of ongoing suffering and death. Now, some might say the same about the Christian answer to suffering. We don't get all the answers we might want to the questions that suffering and death brings. But if you're someone who struggles with unanswered questions about suffering, and if you don't yet, you will, those times will come. Know that Jesus hears your prayers as one who has suffered, who cares. God is a God you can trust, even with unanswered questions about suffering and death. And if you still find that hard to do, and if you don't yet, this timing's coming, you will. And if you still feel like calling out to God, God, you don't care. God, what are you doing? Why don't you do something? then know that God is asking you to trust him in the middle of that mess, even when you don't get the answers that you want. Now, that might sound a little trite, but you need to know that God is a God you can trust, even when everything seems lost and broken. Yes, ask those deep questions, but don't just ask them in the place where you're overwhelmed with sorrow and loss and brokenness. Take yourself to the cross and ask your questions looking at Jesus dying on the cross.
Come to the cross and ask, God, do you care? Come to the foot of the cross and ask, God, where are you? Come to the foot of the cross and ask, God, why don't you do something? At the foot of the cross, you might not get the answers you desire, but you'll meet the God who cares for you more deeply than you could ever fathom. The God that you can trust even when the answers don't come. We will know the God who is with us, who empathises with us even when we don't feel it. And after you've taken yourself to the cross, take yourself to the empty tomb and remember, his resurrection will be yours if you trust him. He's promised a world made right where the suffering and the death and the grief and the tears are gone. And we know he's good for his promise because he's the guy who said he would rise from the dead. And he did. Let's pray. Father God, we want to thank you that you are the God who knows suffering firsthand. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you entered into our world and you suffered, were rejected, were misunderstood, abandoned, tortured, killed, all for us, and you willingly went through that. Father, in the face of suffering that we will all go through, Father, help us come to the foot of the cross again. Help us remember that you are the God we can trust in the midst of it, even when our questions aren't answered. And help us to set forward trusting you, knowing that there is hope, knowing that you are at work, and knowing that you care. Amen.